Hebrews 3. Uh, let me go ahead and read it. Let me go ahead and read it. Starting in verse 7. Uh, this might be familiar. This might not be familiar. Either way, it will be after today. Verse 7. Here we go. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors put me to the test, though they had seen my works for 40 years. I have a question. This has nothing to do with anything, but how many of your Bibles uh, put verse 10 starting at therefore? Do any of you have translations that put verse 10 there? You do? Yeah. Okay. Most of y'all's translations have verse 10 starting at 440 years, right? That is, that is the weirdest thing to me. Um, I'm sorry, that's just... This, this is, I have verse 10 just completely marked out of my Bible. Um, not the verse, the number 10, because uh, it's in such a weird spot. Um, just, just so you know, just to give you some background, um, because it, can, it really affects you. Listen, listen to this, listen to this, okay? This has nothing to do with anything, but I just... I just need to. Uh, it says, as on the day in the test of testing in the wilderness. I'm going to read it just like it's in most of our Bibles. As in the day of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors put me to the test, though they had seen my works. For 40 years, therefore I was, you know what I mean? It's just like, what? Um, so anyway, who, the blessed, blessed people that put the numbers in, the numbers are not um, divine, by the way. Um, okay, yeah, yeah. So anyway, I just that's just weird. So anyway, uh, that has nothing to do with anything. I know I just called the Bible weird, um, but it's not the Bible. It's the people that added the numbers in the Bible. God bless them. Okay, so come back home. Ancestors put me to the test, though they had seen my works for 40 years. Do you just listen to that, okay? Okay, they hardened their hearts. They tested the Lord. Though they had seen his works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation. And I said, they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. That, that, seems, very, that seems very fitting um, for today. They always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. Verse 11, as in my anger, I swore they will not enter my rest. Take care, brothers and sisters, that none of you may have an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. We'll come back to that. But extort one another, um, exhort, not extort one another, um, exhort one another (laughs) every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partners of Christ If only we hold to our first confidence firm to the end, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Verse 16. Now, who were they who hardened, or excuse me, who were they who heard and yet were rebellious? Who were they? Was it not all those who left Egypt under the leadership of Moses? But with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not... Those who sin, whose body fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were, un, listen to this, they were unable to enter because of unbelief. 
So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest is still open, let us take care that none of you should avoid or should seem to have failed to reach it. For indeed, the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest just as God has said, as in my anger I swore they shall not enter my rest, though his works were finished at the foundation of the world. I'm almost done. For in one place, as it speaks about the seventh day, as follows, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place it says, they shall not enter my rest. It's the fourth time that that's been mentioned. Verse 6. Since therefore it remains open for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he sets a certain day today, saying through David much later in the words already quoted, and here we go again, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I mean, that's super, super repetitive. When you see this, because um, and especially the, the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 95. Um, so he's quoting a Hebraic language. In Hebrews, um, repetition, and in Greek too, but, but not as much. But in Hebrews, repetition is a, is a language technique to say this is what you need to pay attention to. Okay, So the fact that this is mentioned over and over and over and over again is, is like these big signs flashing saying, don't miss this, okay? Um, could, could you bump, Jordan, could you bump that to 72, both of those? I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm freezing. Um, so, uh, I know. Okay. Thank you, Jordan. So there's a lot in these verses, but I, I want to hone in on one main point as hard as it is for me to do that. Uh, but I'm gonna, I want to hone in on one thing. Okay? There are two ideas that stand in contrast with each other. Those two ideas are rest and an inability to enter into rest due to a hardened heart. So last week, I taught about living a generous life. We've been given a gospel of a generous God, and the only proper response is to respond generously rather than meagerly. Okay? If you missed it, go back and listen. Uh, we don't give God what is required. We give God what love dares us to give. Okay? And if everything is his, we don't approach things like you know, money, for example, with a mindset of how much of my money do I need to give God. Rather, we approach things like money with a mindset of how much of God's resources and money do I need to receive from him. We don't pile up all of our resources and mark off 10% for the Lord. We view all of our resources as from the Lord and receive what is required of, uh, of us and then see that the rest has always been His. So it's a change in perspective. But it's not just money. It's every area of our lives. We talked about this last week. It's seeing all of our lives as God's and then any portion that the Lord needs us to receive to do the things that we need to do, we receive freely. Okay, But at the end of the day, we, we, our perspective has to shift from here's my life. This is, this is where you know, 
the, the, the Plato influence and Greek influence, this is where it gets us. Because we see that man in Hellenism is the measure of all things. Man, when I say man, I mean man and woman. Man is the measure of all things. But that's not how the kingdom works. In the kingdom, Yahweh is the measure of all things. Okay? In the beginning, Yahweh was the measure of all things. We were created not with an image and likeness. We were created with his image and likeness. Okay? So even who we are is a mere reflection of the one that all things revolve around. Okay? So you, are, you and I, we're not the measure of all things in our lives. God is the measure of all things. Now, the problem with that is, is we're told outside of the church when we leave, we're told through all the different mediums, whether it be news or your job or financial or whatever, we're told that we're the measure of all things. This is what democracy is, right? And democracy is great. I'm glad we have a democracy. But we're, we're constantly inundated with the message that all of this is all about you. Okay? And the kingdom is teaching a message that all of this is all about him. Right? And so we see things like, you know, and we talk, I'm just, this is all review, but we see things like church as a measure of my likes and desires, which is why people will leave churches when they don't like the music or they don't like the teaching or they don't like the programs. Right? Me, 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 me. You don't teach this. You don't say this. Y'all don't sing this song. I don't like that person on stage, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Or vice versa. You teach too much. You know what I mean? You can never please everybody. You teach too much. Y'all sing too long. You have too much space where there's not anybody talking. You know, whatever the case may be. And, and when, you, when you put man at the center of the church, you begin to build really, really big churches because guess what humans like? Things being all about them, right? So you begin to build big, big, massive ministries all revolving around typically a man or man's desires. So our churches get bigger while the world gets more lost. How does that work? How does that happen, right? It's because the church was supposed to be the place, the first fruit that says when you place God at the center of everything and everything revolve around the will of the Lord, this is what peace, this is what a kingdom can look like. The world is supposed to look, and I hate using the world and the church back and forth, but that's the best language we've got right now. Um, but the church is supposed to be the place that the world looks into to see a better way. It's supposed to look into the church to see a model for what it looks like for the kingdom of God to expand beyond the church and into the entirety of the creation. That's why we're a first fruit. That's why Jesus is even called the first fruit among many. It's because it's, it's him that all things revolve around, but from there, we could go anywhere. We could do anything as long as it's from there, right? So nothing is impossible, absolutely, as long as whatever you're defining as impossible has placed the one in whom nothing is impossible for at the center. Does that make sense? Okay. And so... Because we're constantly inundated with the message of me, it, it, it feels um, like it's going against the grain when you start to place God back in the middle. And living a generous life 
begins with putting God back in his proper place, putting you back in your proper place, and then you start, it's really difficult for me to see, you know, just while we're talking about this, remind me to do offering at the end, by the way. Um, but it's really difficult for me to see all of my resources as mine if God is at the center of my life. Does that make sense? So rather than, okay, Lord, here's your 10%, boo, as if I have 10% to give him, rather than being thankful and living in a place of thanksgiving that Yahweh has taken all of his resources, which are his, and graciously given me whatever I need to live fully off of. It's a perspective shift. It might not even be that big of a difference amount-wise, but it's a quality and perspective shift. You begin, every time you get a paycheck, every time you make a sale, every time you get you know, something new happening at work, you begin to be thankful for the thing that you just kind of took for granted in life. How many of you, all right, the first is coming up in a couple of days, right? And most everybody gets paid on the first. How many of you, when that money shows up in your bank account, do you stop everything and say, thank you, God? Our, bill, our bills are paid this month. I mean, do we, I mean, did any of y'all do that? I don't. My dad does. He's, that's okay. You know what I mean? Right? But... What y'all don't see is we've been through something as a family that would make him very thankful for that paycheck. You know, but, but how many of us, when we receive that which is from the Lord, do we even stop and say, thank you? And then it's my joy to return to you an extravagant portion of what you just returned to me. Do you see how that has a whole nother meaning? As opposed to, I better get my paycheck at midnight. You know what I mean? And then it comes in, you pay your bills, here you go, Lord, get off my back, and move on. Right? I mean, so, so living a generous life has to start with placing God back at the center. And the way that you place God back at the center is, here we go, is to make everything in your life about one thing. And, and, and the, the secret place that, I mean, I don't even know how many messages that we've taught on The Secret Place, is literally everything. It's everything. It's the place that you consistently come back to and reinforce what is real. It's the place that you come back to and begin to hear the whispers that you're not hearing outside of that secret place. While everybody else is telling you what you should be, while, I mean... You young people in college and stuff, like all everybody has an opinion of what you should do with your life, right? Everybody has an opinion of who you should be with, of at what age you should be married by, of at what age you should have kids by. Everybody has an opinion. But when you return to that secret place, you remember only one thing matters. One thing I desire, and this shall I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And then whatever else happens outside of that, praise God. So the two ideas that stand in contrast here is that rest, and I'll talk about what this is in a second, and it's a hardened heart, and because of a hardened heart, an inability to enter rest. So today I want to speak on specifically 
And I hate giving titles because it just feels so cliche, but I have to. Um, I want to speak on a generous church. A generous church. Sort of a tongue twister. Generous church. Say that about ten times real quick. Don't do it. Don't do it. Um, This text in Hebrews is speaking, number one, to a group of people, not just individuals. Okay? So this is the first thing to, to see in this. That the writer of Hebrews here is not speaking to an individual. It's not speaking to a bunch of individuals. It's speaking to a body of people as one. Okay? And again, I mentioned this earlier, but, but all of our typical ways of seeing everything just stems from the society that we're in, very influenced by Greek. Okay? Very influenced. And Greek had an amazing... I mean, Greek, Greece was unbelievable. The Greek people, Alexander the Great, were unbelievable and there are some things in our culture that we would not have that we love had it not been for them interstates roads you know what i mean it's just you know they were brilliant people that's just i i just wouldn't take my theology from people that were you know believed in a thousand different gods right you know what i'm saying and um and and all of those gods revolved around them does that sound familiar um this this where you get the protagoras uh um, statement when he talks about man being in the center of all things and another philosopher comes in after him and says, here's another way you could say this, God created man in his image and man returned the favor. Okay? So, the first gospel that was preached ever, this is where we get the word gospel from, okay, is from Alexander the Great. This is, we get the word gospel, which means good news, from Alexander the Great, who preached a gospel across all the territories he took over. And the gospel was Hellenism is here. This is all review, but just to kind of bring you back to where we are. And what's best for us in those times became what's best for me. And it's been this ever since. But when we look back at the Exodus which is what the author of Hebrews is referencing. He's he's quoting Psalms, but he's referencing, he or she, is referencing the Exodus. When you look back at the Exodus, we see a family, a group of people, enslaved together and delivered together. Not individuals. And as extremely difficult as it is for us to see, we've been trained, because we've been trained otherwise, the church is a community that is seen as one, not a bunch of individuals that happen to be in the same place at Sunday at 10. Hang with me. Hang with me. I know today's super practical, but we need it. The church is a community seen together as one, not a bunch of individuals that happen to be in the same place. And if this is the case, things are going to look very different than the church expression that's all about me and you. I mean, I'm not here as a pastor to serve you. We are here as different parts of the body to serve the Lord and then to serve us. How odd is that? Even as I say that, there's something probably in you that's like, wait a minute, you know? The pastor's here to serve the people. No, the pastor's here to show the people that we are here to serve the Lord. And then beyond that, to serve each other. So I mentioned this to uh, Mark this week. Every one of you in this room are just as much pastor as me. I've been called to shepherd shepherds. What does that mean? 
and we see that the way that the church is designed to operate is um, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. So the church at its best is not you bring all of your you know, lost friends into the room and then let the pastor save them. The church at its best is raising up the people of the church so that you can go to your lost friends and bring them home. So because of that, all of you are pastors. You might not know that, you might not believe it, and you sure might not feel like it, and you probably don't get the emails like it, okay? But everyone in this room, you're pastors. You are shepherds in some way, shape, or form in some church called your job or your family or maybe literally in a ministry, but all of you have a role of shepherding someone if it's just yourself. And because of that, the church at its best, is all the pieces of that body coming together to minister equally to the Lord. And how many times do we come in, and hopefully not here as much, but, but how many times, very typical, do we come into the church to watch the pastor minister to the Lord? No, 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 let me fix this. Most of the time, we come into the church to watch the pastor minister to the people. Very little ministry to the Lord happens, okay? But, but in, a good, in a good day, we come to observe someone burn, which is why it's really easy for us to have the mindset of, if I'm there, I'm there. If I'm not, I'm not. If I'm involved, great. If I'm not, doesn't matter. Somebody will take care of it, blah, blah, blah. Because that's typically, that mindset stems from a place where we see church as a bunch of people that are fans or observers of a few people that burn. Right? Okay? And for us, the Lord is shifting. If any of that has, has gotten its way in, if any of that leaven has gotten its way in, the Lord is now shifting us to a place where we start to fully see the church as us, not me. I want to be a major contributor in what we are doing. I do not want all of you to show up to watch what I'm doing. Amen. I thought it would be great. So it's hard for us to see this. But when we realize what we're called to as a body, it does two things. It makes it impossible for the church to ever be about an individual, a superstar, whatever you want to say. And number two, it puts you in a place of responsibility rather than observing. And let me say, let me, let me go a little deeper in this. An observing or an apathetic part of the body affects the entire body, not just you. So if we're going to see revival, it won't be one or two people really on fire. It will have to be us as a body really on fire. Fire is an interesting thing. Have you, you've, you've seen the, you've seen the uh, uh, memes and stuff of the pastors are like, fire, 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 you know, thinking, you know, for, yeah, that's, our, that's our people, you know. If we say it loud enough and fast enough and hard enough with enough claps, It'll be fire. Um, but fire is an interesting thing, okay? 
If you've ever built a fire, especially around this time of year, it takes a long time to get it started and a lot of tending to get it started. I hate building fires. I love enjoying fires, but I hate building fires, right? Because you'll get, this is, what, this is what I usually do. Well, now I've gone, I, I'll just go to Food Line and buy those little quick starter things, light them up, and then we're there. But before, what I would do is I would get a toilet paper tube, okay? And I would take lint from the dryer, stuff it in that toilet paper tube, put it there, put some smaller twigs, you know, like a teepee around it, put the big logs on top of it, light it up, we're, we're rolling, okay? That took a lot of time. It was messy, you know? But, but, here's the thing about fire. Once you get it started, and once it spreads, it's nearly impossible to put out. Look at forest fires. One tree on fire is pretty easy to put out. Right? Call the fire department, blast it with water, we're done. Trees, trees out. But a thousand trees on fire that make up an entire wood is nearly impossible to put out. You see this in California all the time. When one fire spreads into a forest fire, I mean, it takes months sometimes for them to put it out. And even then, they don't put it out. It just kind of burns out. So, so one tree on fire, easy to put out. A thousand trees or multiple trees or an entire wood, or let's say it like this, a body of trees on fire can't be put out. I believe this is why so many revivals have died so quickly. They were built on a handful of people on fire. And a lot of people observing the fire from a distance. They felt the warmth of other people on fire, but they themselves never combusted. Therefore, the fire died, and no one was any different than before because all they did was observe somebody else's transformation. I mean, if I'm experiencing transformation, that matters to you because it becomes permission for you to experience transformation, not because you can just simply watch me burn. How quiet today. Today, we judge um, ministries' performances on how much they are doing as far as works go. There may be a sliver of merit to this, but think of how backwards this concept is 99% of the time. The problem is not the men or women not doing enough. The problem is the rest of the men and women watching what is being done and doing nothing alongside of them. It's not sustainable and will absolutely 100% of the time fail, right? I've said in these meetings where my, my success as a leader in ministry is judged by, you know, how many people, how much money. And the irony is every single one of those measurements of success are not based on me. It's based on what those things are doing in response to the gospel. Do you see what I'm saying? And so we've got this backwards mind that... A handful of people are burning. Everybody else is going to watch. And we're going to judge the success of the handful that are burning based on how much the other people are showing up to watch. This turn in the road the Lord's calling us to make is stopping us right here. Six years in, the number of men, and saying, 
We must stop making this, if we have done this, about one or two or three or a handful of people. In a season, it was. But now it's time to take responsibility for our church. Okay? A pastor's job is to shepherd. Shepherding requires sheep that knows the shepherd's voice to follow. This is what we do with Jesus. But in reality, a pastor's job is to lead the sheep down the right path. The shepherd's job is not to carry the sheep where they need to go so that they can get there. Right? So the job of a pastor is to step in and say, this is the path. Okay? The vision. The job for everyone else in the body is to say, we see the path and now we're going to walk. Right? This is very like foundational milk stuff. So y'all good? Everybody with me? Thanks. Look at the passage again in Hebrews. Okay? I don't have much more. Do not harden your hearts. Harden in the Greek is to make stubborn. It's literally what the Greek means. What is stubborn? In fact, let me give you the Greek word. Okay? Um, harden is skleruno. Skleruno in Greek. To make stubborn. What is stubborn? Here's the definition of stubborn. You ready? Some of y'all are like, I know the definition. It's, and then you have a name there. Or multiple names there. You know? That's okay. Um, but, but here's what definition uh, stubborn is when you look it up. You ready? Having or showing dogged determination not to change one's attitude or position on something in spite of convincing evidence. That makes it sound a lot more like, like scholarly than, you know what I mean? But stubborn, this is stubborn. Showing a dog determination not to change one's mind or attitude or position in spite of convincing evidence to do so. Right? It's religion, you know. But, but it's, it's seeing the truth, seeing it laid out in front of you, and refusing. Ref, you'd, you'd rather be wrong. Right? I mean, how many of us know this? I know, I know of people, because I'm one of those people, depending on the situation, okay? So I know them. That would rather be wrong and not change my position than to simply change and be right. Right? I did this with the gospel for years. The, right? The Lord would begin to open my eyes to things, and I'm like, that, that, that can't be the gospel. Brother so-and-so said, you know, blah, blah. That can't, that can't be. Right? Okay? Now, it's funny, but, but we do this so much with the Lord. The Lord will call us to a, a level of stepping out in faith for example. And despite the many years of seeing the faithfulness of the Lord never letting us down, we will still kick back when the Lord calls us to take another step deeper. That's stubborn. That's why I said that's me sometimes. So he says that they could not, let me just read it, verse 8. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as on the day of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors put me to the test, though they had seen my works for 40 years. In other words, they saw for 40 years the works 
of the Lord. And I'm not just talking about a church growing. I'm talking about deliverance from Egypt, who, by the way, was we don't even know of, of a country today that we could compare Egypt to at this time. Um, it, it's the mega power of the world, Egypt is. The richest, the most powerful country in all of the world. Enslaved, Israel, enslaved there, they saw the Lord deliver them from the most powerful nation possibly in history, okay? Deliver them out. They get, you know the story, they get to the waters, they're trapped, Egypt changes their mind, they're coming after, so you got the most powerful nation in the history of the world coming after you with all their armies, and then you've got a body of water. You've just ticked them off, right? And you're standing there, there's no way out until Moses, probably feeling like a crazy guy, steps up and has the faith that if the Lord brought us this far, he can do something as crazy as part the waters for us. The waters are parted and they walk across on dry land. As they get across to the other side, the waters collapse on their enemies and they are set free from their enemies. So they've seen that. It's not it. They walk out, they're being led by this pillar of cloud by day. At night, they're being led by a pillar of fire. When they're hungry, food just randomly appears on the ground and dew is turned into bread. When they want meat, the Lord sends quail. When they want water, Moses, all he does is walk up to a rock, strikes it, water gushes out for millions of people to have water. When they go to a bitter stream, the Lord reverses the bitterness in the stream to make it drinkable again. If that's not enough, they go through all these different lands with people who want nothing to do with them. And every time they are threatened, the Lord steps in and delivers them yet again. He prepares a place for them, a promised land for them. And only he requires them to step into it and trust that everything else that needs to happen, he'll take care of. I mean, you know. So they're delivered, they're walking through the wilderness. They had seen this for 40 years because of their refusal to believe in it, and they still had hardened hearts. So if they, and, and back up a little bit, not just this, y'all with me? Not just this. They were at Sinai when they see the Lord descend on the mountain and audibly speak to them, give them all these laws so that they can be a nation that stewards this presence of God, marries them. It's what literally the Sinai was a, was a covenant. It was a marriage covenant. Marries this nation and says, I will be your God and you will be my people. They've seen all of this and yet they cannot enter into rest. And the reason they can't enter into rest is because they have stubborn hearts. They had hearts that were unwilling to change. They observed mighty things, yet they never entered into what was promised of them because they didn't allow what they saw to become who they were. The whole was held back because the whole wouldn't change. I would argue Moses might be the most faithful man in the Old Testament. You'd, have a hard, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more faithful man than Moses. And Moses did not enter into the promised land. Why? 
Not because Moses was unfaithful. He did one unfaithful thing. Okay? But even the reason he did that one unfaithful thing was because the whole of Israel were stubborn. So Moses, if we're thinking individualistically, Moses should have entered into the promised land. I mean, this is Moses. He led the people out. But because he was part of a whole that refused to be transformed by what they saw, even he, the faithful one, was held back. Do you see this? It wasn't about the individuals who were faithful. It was about the entire body, the entire family who were either going to wholly be transformed by what they saw or they were wholly going to die in the wilderness and be a generation that the next generation steps over to finally get into what they were called into. The whole was held back because the whole wouldn't change. God was angry. The word angry there in Greek is displeased. Okay? He was displeased with that generation because they always go astray in their heart. Or the Greek word for astray there is wonder. So they always wondered in their heart. You almost get this idea of they were always distracted by thoughts. Have you ever seen somebody like this? Where you're having a conversation with them and you know they're like not even present. They're just wondering, right? I do this a lot. Sorry, Jordan tells, calls me out on it all the time. Um, but you almost have this picture of being distracted by other thoughts. Like how many times have our thoughts held us back from the things the Lord has called us to? Right? Not real things, not things that have happened. Matt talked about this a few weeks ago, but just simply our thoughts. Maybe our past, what might happen in the future, what might happen if I make this decision, I might fail, and then we never step into anything because of our wondering thoughts. Okay? So they're always going astray, which makes him displeased because it's like, like, have y'all not seen? Have you not seen what's happened before your eyes? And yet, stubborn. Therefore, they never entered into rest. Rest here isn't a lack of activity. Okay? When we say rest, we're not talking about sitting around watching TV, eating popcorn, doing nothing. Okay? Sometimes you need that. Most of the time you don't need that, right? That's not what we're talking about a rest. We're not talking about inactivity. Rest is related to closely our idea of the kingdom of God. So it's the place where peace reigns and all is as it should be. You're at rest. Okay? So like right now, I'm, I'm preaching and I'm doing and yet I'm at rest. Okay? So the writer of Hebrews gives the audience that he's writing to a warning to not have an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from God. What is evil for the author? We just read it. An unbelieving heart. And what is an unbelieving heart? A heart that sees but never becomes. A stubborn heart. So what is evil for the author here? An unbelieving heart. And what is an unbelieving heart? A heart that refuses to be transformed by what they see. And then verse 19, he says this, or she. We don't know who's the author of Hebrews. That's why I keep saying that. So we see that they were unable to enter into rest because of unbelief. And finally, in the portion of chapter 4 that we read, the writer now challenges us, knowing the failure of the generation in the wilderness, to not do the same thing. Interestingly, our generation in general has done this. Right? We've seen the Lord do amazing things and have heard of the Lord doing 
amazing things, and yet we refuse to become what those things have called us to become. You might not have experienced, you know, some world-changing, miraculous thing in your life. Um, I would argue you have. I mean, the very fact that you were born is miraculous. You know, the fact that you're here today, that you drove here in a car, most of the world can't afford a car. Most of the world can't afford food. You have a car, you know? So you drove here in a car, you woke up in a house that was heated at night and the air was on in the day just to make sure it stays right at 72 because it can't go a little higher or a little colder or else it's like uncomfortable, right? 72, is that y'all's number 72? Anybody else? Yeah, 72. Yeah, Jordan says now hers number is 73. So, you know, but you know what I'm saying? And we have to turn the air down to 67 at night because Veda will not sleep unless it is 67 degrees. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so, so we've seen miraculous things. On top of that, like, I don't know about you, our daughter possibly should not be here today. And the Lord healed her in Jordan's womb. You know? And a lot of us have gone through really difficult things. And it's miraculous that you're here today to speak of the things the Lord has done beyond those really difficult. That's miraculous. Because not everything turns out rainbows and roses, right? But the Lord takes all the hurt even. And he moves us into a place where it is all worked out for the good. And he even steps in and fulfills the death on our behalf that we were designed to have before because of our wondering so that now death has no say in our lives. So even if you go through tragedy, the only thing waiting on the other end of your life is resurrection. Death can't hold you down, right? And so we have this hope that is an anchor, Hebrews says, for our soul that we live and move in. And yet... We seem to take all this stuff for granted and we seem to live in a place of stubbornness so many times, right? Uh, I, was, I was telling Mark this this week. We, we have gotten into a place in our family where we just feel the Lord doing just, just some really amazing stuff. And do you know what happens this week? We get a bill in the mail from a hospital visit that we had to make and suddenly there's a temptation to get really, really stressed out about money. You know what I'm saying? How many of y'all can relate? And in that moment, it took me about 30 minutes, but in that moment, I had to remind myself that I'm not going to be held back by a stubborn heart. I've seen the Lord do unimaginable things, far more than I could ever ask or imagine, and I refuse to let my wandering, astray mind lead me to a place of disbelief when I have tangibly seen true and real move of the Lord in my life over and over and over and over again. So I'm not going to allow the fact that there's giants in the land to keep me from doing what he said, which is, you just walk. I'll take care of the giants. You just walk. If you get there, I'll take care of the rest. Right? And they go spy in, and there's giants in the land, and they say, we can't do this. And the Lord says, I never asked you to do it. Praise God, you can't do it. But goodness, thank goodness, I never asked you to do it. I'll do it. Just got to walk. No, we can't do this, my Lord. I wish we had died in Egypt. That would have been much better. They, didn't even, they haven't even walked in. You know what I mean? And we, but we do this, right? 
We chase these thoughts down the road that ultimately end in our failure when that's never, ever been a possibility. So the writer in chapter four is challenging us, knowing the failure of that generation in the wilderness, to not do the same thing. We've seen the Lord do amazing things. We've heard of him doing amazing things. And our call is to move into the place where we, as it says in verse 2, where it benefits us because we are united by faith with those who listen. So most of what we say, most of the church as a whole are observers of the Lord and are stubborn. And I say that in the scholarly way, not the southern way. Okay? And this is most seen, most seen in the church, unfortunately. You know, how many of us, this isn't a knock, this isn't, you know. But like, we, we in our society in general, um, kind of, church is sort of a fleeting thing now. I don't care. People don't really care if they're involved. They don't really care if they're there or not. Or, you know, it's it's sort of just a a, it's just a thing that's there. Most people don't care if their family's plugged into the body of Christ. Got other things to do. That also suck the life out of us. You know, but we we prefer Egyptian slavery, or maybe we, maybe it'd be more accurate to say Babylonian slavery. But we prefer Egyptian slavery. And because of that, we're always going astray and wondering in our hearts. And then, then we begin to wonder why the Lord is not moving in our lives. We don't, I mean, and I say we generally, like I said, I'm not speaking specifically to us. I'm just speaking in general. And if it applies to us, amazing. But typically the church, you know, how many people, how many people in the church care if the church is, you know, speaking about money, financially healthy? Most people don't care, you know? How many, and you guys are great about this, but just think about this. We typically don't ever think, is our pastor burned out from carrying the load of multitudes of observers? I, I, I uh, met a pastor this past week. Um, he asked his church if he could have a sabbatical, first one ever. He's been a pastor for decades. And uh, the people in the church were mad that he asked for a sabbatical because that's not what he gets paid for. He doesn't get paid to sit around and do nothing. You know what I'm saying? So, but, but, but just, we, we don't think about this, right? I mean, how, let's go even deeper. How many times do we think about the spiritual health of the body? We think a lot about the spiritual health of other people. Have you seen what so-and-so posted on Instagram? Or whatever, you know what I mean? So we care a lot about the other people. But, but how many times do we pray for even the spiritual health of us as one. I mean, we don't, we don't have that much of a burden for our brothers and sisters, typically. But then we have the audacity to wonder why the church isn't doing more than it's doing. So I want to make a statement. The progress of the church is dependent, outside of being dependent on the Lord, of course, but practically, the progress of the church is dependent on the responsibility of the whole, not the talent of a few. The progress, where we go from here, 
of the church is dependent on the responsibility of the whole, not the talent of a few. Vision does not matter if the ones called to carry out the vision are just simply fans of it. We need more vision. No, we need people to carry out the vision that we have. We have vision. I'll tell you right now where we're going. I was, we talked about this this week. I, I have in my mind, my dream is for a hub in this city where the church is the center of it, where we have businesses all around us that you guys are starting, that we help you start, that you guys are financially stable and growing in. We have libraries, we have schools, and it becomes a hub of the kingdom of God. Not just church, not just where people show up on Sundays, but every day of the week, life is happening within the kingdom. And then it's being taken from there into all different areas of our society. Where college kids, if they want to study, they come study at a coffee shop that, oh, by the way, is connected to the place where the kingdom is moving in a mighty and big way in the city of Columbia. And as they're studying science, as they're studying whatever they're studying, suddenly the Lord begins to move in their lives in completely unexpected ways because they're in an environment where the kingdom is being hosted. This is my dream. We've got the vision. Okay? We have vision on earth as it is in heaven. Where the Lord is calling us now to is to do more than just communicate vision and to take the prophetic vision and hear the request, who will go for us and respond with, here we are, send us. And that looks different. For some people, that might look like the Lord has blessed you. This is what the guy was talking, a couple of men I were talking to last week in Michigan. The Lord might bless you financially to be one to just throw fuel financially on the fire and say, go. That's not everybody, but that might be you. For some of you, it might be prayer. Angela is very extremely burdened for prayer in our church, which is what we desperately need. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's amazing. She's leading the way in that. Right? But, but we have all these different pieces that you guys are called to within this to put arms and legs and feet and hair and all this other awesome stuff to the vision. And all we have to do is say yes to being a body that refuses to live stubborn, that refuses to wander astray. And I get it. We've made the church. We, we as a whole have made the church a concert. Right? And so, so it makes sense that we've simultaneously created thousands of fans that show up every now and then to cheer on the band. But to be clear, this is not church. In fact, in Greek, literally the word for church is ekklesia. And the literal definition of ekklesia is an assembly of people together. That's literally what church is. The very definition of church is an assembly of people. In other words, you can't do church alone. How many, how many of y'all have heard that? I'm, I, can, I can be church wherever I am. No, you can't. You can have a relationship with Jesus wherever you are, absolutely. But just to be clear, the church is the assembly of brothers and sisters and moms and dads and sons and daughters that come together as one to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ into the earth. 
I mean, Hebrews 10.25 says this. Y'all know this verse. Let us not forsake the fellowship that we have among ourselves as the manner of some is, but let us exhort one another. It's a major deal. And like I said last week, you are preaching the gospel to yourself and your people around you and your family and friends and coworkers, no matter what we think we do with the church. The gospel that we preach is either this does not matter, so we'll get it when we can, or the message that we preach is this is everything. But you're preaching a message with your life. And it's not with your words, it's with how you are living. Okay? And the Lord is calling us to transform the next generations by carrying a unique reformation that has only been witnessed a handful of times in history. Matt, you can hop up here. I can only preach this because we've been in such a place of teaching that salvation is not by works. Because if you're not careful, you hear what I'm saying and say all of this is dependent on our works. No. We get to do the work now because our identity has been established apart from the work. Work is extremely important. It's just not who you are. Work is what who you are gives birth to. So this is why faith without works is dead. Not because your faith is built on your works, but because if you are what your faith says you are, the way that you can know if you have fully been embraced by the gospel is to look at what your life is producing. And if your life is producing good works, it's a sign that you've been embraced by a good God and a good gospel. If you look at your life and no works are being seen, it's not a sign that you're not you know, in Christ or that you're rejected by God or whatever. It's a sign that maybe you haven't been fully embraced or allowed yourself to be fully embraced by the gospel of salvation. And when that becomes an embrace, you begin to live just, just different. I was, I was talking to, uh, and I'm not saying any of you have to do this, but I was, I was talking to a ministry friend of mine um, that I've known for years this past week. And he said, in a service, and he and his wife just didn't have this to float around and give. He said, in a service, he felt like the Lord told him to write a check for $1,400 to a, a single mom in the church that uh, had lost her job and they, they were in need. So he was like, we didn't really have that, but we wrote the check anyway. And he said, I kid you not, before the end of worship in that service, another person came up to me and said, I don't know why, but I feel the Lord told me to give you this. And it was a check for $1,600 in the same service. And I'm not saying that because prosperity or whatever the case may be. But what I, the reason I'm saying this is to say, when you begin to live from a place of faith, the Lord will begin to respond in things that only your act of faith could open up for your life. And you know and have the confidence that you can walk in faith because you've been convinced that you are who he says you are, that you could never let him down even if you tried, and that there is no possibility of failure if God is Abba and you are sons and daughters of an Abba who is absolutely infatuated with you. 
So, so it, it, is, it is not just steps of faith that we take, like they're this monstrous thing that may or may not happen. We're just going to jump off a cliff. It's actually the most sure thing that we could ever do as a body to walk in faith. We walk by faith, not by sight, right? Everybody has it memorized. People put it on their bumper stickers, and most of us live by sight, you know? I walk by faith and not by sight. In other words, I walk by what I know, not necessarily by what I see. And then what I see will begin to submit to what I know. Right? I mean, I joked about it. I don't, the prosperity gospel thing is not. However, just don't fool yourself. When you open your finances up to the Lord, you will absolutely be blessed. I don't give to be blessed, but you better believe we are absolutely blessed because we give. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like, we, we get into this thing where we start throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We see somebody on TBN say, sow a thousand dollars and your hair will grow out of your nose or whatever. And so we do it and we say, okay, prosperity gospel is the word. But make no mistake about it. You open your finances up to the Lord and the Lord says, you test me. I'll prove to you I'll throw open the floodgates of heaven over your life. And I'll give you more. I won't just give you back what you gave me. I'll give you so much that you're confused about what to do with all of it. That's not prosperity gospel. That's just God. That's just the gospel. We gave God dead and sin and running. And God responded to that by saying, you know what? I'm going to go get them. And when I go get them, I'm going to get everybody else too. And when I go get everybody else, I'm going to go get the creation too. I'm going to bring it all. And I'm here to seek and to save that which was lost. God responded to what was absolutely meager with something that is overly generous. And our proper response in faith is to live out that generosity. But today, today, the challenge is for us to see that Dream Church from this day forward will live and die on us, not me. I, I have to transition from a doer to an empowerer. And many of you in this season are transitioning from observers to active body parts. We, we need you. We need you. Not for what you can do. We just simply need you. We need what you carry. We need what you bring in this room. I told Emily this Tuesday, I'm, I'm probably, it probably came off as a joke, but it's true. Emily wasn't here last week because she was going through Hades, <laughs> but she's back. You know, if she made her bed in hell, he's there. Um, oh, get it, made your bed. See, that was better than I thought it was, okay. Um, but I told Emily this, and this is true, I said, you, you could literally, like, you could feel a difference when Emily wasn't here last week. You just could. And it's not because Emily, like, I mean, Emily does a lot of great things. But it's not because Emily is, like, you know, in here busting her tail, doing everything, you know, making sure everything. It, it's just what she carries. You know what I mean? I mean, same with all of you. I could, I could literally just sit here and go down the line of every single one of you carry something that we need and when that piece is missing or when that piece isn't all in on what the Lord is doing not just like you know as dream church but just doing in the earth 
when those pieces are missing, it doesn't just hold you, it holds all of us back because the Lord wants to move in us. This is the original idea was the human race as a family, not a bunch of human individuals that are defined scientifically as the human race. It's us. So Dream Church is going to live on the faithfulness of us. You have greatness in you for this moment. And as the writer of Hebrews says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I wanna read this over you and then I'm gonna pray. Brandon shared this on Tuesday and I told you I'd steal it, so here we go. Um, Brandon read this Tuesday and I thought it was so fitting for, for today. So let me read this. This is in James 1, 22. You don't have to turn there, just hear this. James says, but be doers of the word, not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any hearers of the word are not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror, for they look at themselves and on going away, immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and uh, persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. Uh, That's amazing. Those who hear, but not just hear and forget, who hear and do, they will be blessed in their doing. It's what Deuteronomy tells the Israelites. Everything your hands touch will prosper. Not just what you're called to do, not just what the Lord tells you to do. He says, every single thing you put your hands to will prosper. Why? Because you're mine. So uh, let me pray. We've got some, we got some big dreams. And I want to challenge you as I pray and then moving on to this week and then we'll give. So if you need to prepare for giving, go ahead and do that too. Um, but I want to challenge you this week to just consider like why, I said this Tuesday, but why am I here? Why am I at Dream Church? What has the Lord placed me here for? And then number two, what are the places in my individual secret place that need to be re-sparked? Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for another opportunity to carry this word, to carry the word of the Lord. I thank you for another opportunity for us to steward it as a body. I pray that today, that every word that you've spoken Um, through me and through anybody else, through even our minds as we're hearing this. I pray that all of it would not hit the ground. I pray that it wouldn't be quickly snatched away. I pray that it would go deep into good soil and would bear fruit a hundred times what was planted. God, I pray that our church, as we are in a recalibration season, as we're in a reorientation, that you would move us into a kingdom expression that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has comprehended what you are doing for those who love you. I pray that you would spark us in the secret place. I pray that for those that this hasn't been the case for a while, that you would wake us up in the middle of the night and say, I've got to get to my beloved. I pray that we would wake up in the morning like it's Christmas with an excitement to get back to the feet of the one who has done it all for us to just hear the way, if it's just to be in his presence, I pray that that would become everything for us, that everything that we do would come from the place 
that we have been designed for one thing, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to gaze upon the beauty of his countenance and to inquire in his temple. And therefore, because we're convinced of that, we can now approach the throne of grace boldly and make our petitions known. I pray that we would start to see us, not you and me and them. We honor you. We honor you with our giving here in just a moment. We give you back what you've given us. We do not withhold from you what you have not withheld from us. And we thank you for the opportunity to do so in your name. Amen. Matt's going to play for a second. If you need to give, actually, let's just pass it around.